Good morning. It's Wednesday, the 14th of June, and I'm Govindraj Ethiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top reports for today. Did you know which is India's top-selling drug and more importantly for what? Get ready for a few surprises. Tire maker MRF stock touches 100,000 rupees on the bosses. That's one stock. High net worth Indians are still fleeing overseas, but lesser numbers likely this year. And finally, can India's angel tax be reinvented? This is a core report with Govindraj Ethiraj. Which are India's top drugs? A hypochondriac is someone who worries about illnesses and falling ill. In India, this has an added dimension because drugs and medicines are available more freely than many other countries. And if you are a hypochondriac, chances are that you're also consuming many of those medicines quite incessantly. Be that as it may, do you know which are the top conditions Indians are suffering from going by the drugs they or you are consuming? And which drugs those are? Well, first the conditions. The pecking order is as follows. Cardiac, anti-infectives, gastrointestinal, anti-diabetic, vitamins and nutritional, and finally respiratory. Now, you may also recall me talking about the 14 fixed drug combination or FDC drugs that were banned by the government at the start of this month. These drugs are referred to as cocktails and are a combination of two different drugs like nimesulide and paracetamol or amoxicillin and bromexin. Now, the value of these drugs that are being banned or the specific combination that was most affected was not clear at that point, but is now, thanks to a report from Sheetal Sapale, Vice President at Integrated Healthcare Technology Platform, PharmaRack. I reached out to Sheetal, who also joined me to list the top drug brands in India at this point of time and which areas they belong to. Actually, the major impact of this entire ban has gone on the respiratory segment. So almost 7% of the respiratory portfolio has come under this ban. And majority of the preparations in this respiratory portfolio fall in the cough and cold preparations. Okay, so why is it that there are so many drugs of this kind in the respiratory segment? So basically the ban has come by saying that, you know, this combination, they really don't have any logical reason to be there for treatment of cough and cold. As you know, how the Indian pharma industry also operates is to bring in some new line extension in the market. Uh, Some new additives get added to a preparation and a line extension comes in the market. So there is a new story to sell. But then uh, is it that it really has any impact in treatment? There is a question mark over there. So not all preparations would have that much impact as far as uh, uh, treatment of that condition is concerned is the reason why a ban has been brought for those preparations. So I was looking at, uh, you know, the total industry uh, breakup. So, in terms of conditions, you have cardiac, uh, which currently leads the pack, followed by anti-infectives and uh, gastrointestinal, anti-diabetic, vitamins, minerals and nutritional, and finally respiratory. So, respiratory as a condition in the overall scheme of things is much lower. Is that correct? As an overall market, it is a a little smaller market, but still it contributes to more than 8% of the Indian pharma market. And since respiratory has got a mix of chronic as well as acute. So asthma preparations also come in respiratory segment and cough and cold also come in respiratory segment. That's the reason why it's a good combination of acute as well as chronic portfolio. 
Right. But the biggest segments in India today, I mean, which would also reflect the state of health in the country is cardiac, anti-infectives and gastro. Correct. And has this always been the case, this order? Actually, it was initially the anti-infective segment we used to talk. It is only in the recent years that cardiac segment has gone on a number one position. So this actually talks about how the cardiac market is also becoming a bigger market in the country. And it also talks about the major lifestyle diseases also becoming dominant in our Indian uh, healthcare sector. So that includes diabetic, which is number four in the country? Yes, even diabetes segment has uh, become big. In terms of value, it may not appear to have grown to that extent, but in terms of volumes, it has definitely become bigger because there are a lot of patented molecules which went off patent in the last two, three years, which has given entry to a lot of branded generics and this market has expanded in terms of volumes. Okay. And, you know, if you look at drugs specifically now, uh, the three or four top brands are Augmentin, Lycomet, Manforce and Mixtard. So Augmentin and Lycomet, one is a GSK brand, the other is USB, is antibacterial and diabetic. So the biggest brand in India seems to be focused on bacterial infections. Yes. If you look at uh, why Augmentin becomes a stronger brand, every month we see Augmentin uh, performance is good because it's a legacy brand. Doctors have faith in this brand. And there are many branded generics with this amoxicillin and clavulinic acid which have come in the market. But given a choice, doctors would always prefer Augmentin. After amoxicillin and clavulinic acid came under price control, obviously the price of Augmentin came down significantly. So basically, amoxicillin and clavulinic combinations became more affordable. When we talk to doctors, what they say is now it is better, it is easier for us to prescribe Augmentin because it is at a lower price. So switch from Augmentin to branded generics, doctors do not prefer it much. They would prefer to stick to their Augmentin for a longer period of time because it has become now affordable. Uh, The second and the third, I mean, one is Glycomet and the other is Manforce. Uh, Tell us about those. Manforce, I would really not comment on the ranking because it's not a completely trade-related product. It also has a good amount of uh, OTC, OTX component, maybe a little over-reflected in our audit. But I would definitely say Glycomet GP from USV, uh, it has been having a very strong position in this uh, IPM for so many years now. There has always been a juggle of one rank one, rank two between Augmentin and Glycomet GP. But then this product has had a very strong position and actually it continues to go strong because uh, it falls in the sulfonyl, uh, urea and metformin combinations. While majority of the patented molecules going off patent, there are many of the patients who could not be earlier put on these uh, high-end anti-diabetic products. Uh, doctors have managed to shift them to that. But then uh, that is always the last resort. Whichever patients can be still managed with sulfonylureas plus uh, metformin combinations are still managed by the doctors using that combination only. And if you see in terms of absolute market share of glycomet GP in the oral anti-diabetics market, it has got a very strong market share. I assume that glycomet GP will continue to dominate a strong position in the Indian pharma market as well as the anti-diabetes segment for a relatively longer period of time. It is very difficult to move glycomet GP from that leadership position. 
And uh, start from Abbott, which is an insulin, and Foracort from Cipla, which is an inhaler for asthma, are fourth and fifth. Just one last question, Sheetal. So uh, the top five companies in the country are, uh, in terms of value, are Sun, Abbott, Mankind, Cipla, and Zyda. So that makes it only one multinational in this mix. So is, do you see that changing? Is this, uh, or is this a steady state? Uh, it is a relatively steady state. I mean, the rankings of the companies more or less have remained where it is. Of course, there are some companies who are moving up in a relatively fast way. If you look at companies like Aristo, Micro, they are moving up gradually. But the top companies, the top five players to a great extent, their position usually remains same and quite stable. So if you look at the rankings of this company at a mat level as well as for the month, more or less the top five companies have maintained that steady rank for a mat as well as month level. So when you say mat, can you explain that? Mat is performance for the last 12 months collectively and month would be only for the month. So sun at a mat position, the rank is one. For the month also, it is one. It essentially means that in the last 12 months, the ranking of sun has not changed significantly or even if one of the months it would have changed, it would be for aberration for one month or so. So top five companies, the ranking throughout the uh, tenure of one year more or less remains constant. Sheetal Sapale, thank you so much for joining me. MRF hits 100,000. It was started by K.M. Mamin Mapilai as a toy balloon manufacturer in a shed in Chennai, then Madras in 1946, with an initial funding of 14,000 rupees. Yesterday, its stock, which has always ruled high by the way, touched 100,000 rupees on the stock exchanges. Looking back, things moved fast after Madras Rubber Factory or MRF as it ventured into tread rubber in 1952 and grabbed a market share of 50% by 1956. In 1961, MRF went public and established a technical collaboration with Mansfield Tire and Rubber Company from the United States and made its first tire from the new pilot plant in Thiruvathur. The other players in India at the time were multinationals Dunlop and Goodyear. In 1963, Jawaharlal Nehru inaugurated the foundation of the Rubber Research Centre in the same place. A year later, the MRF Muscle Man, who we see even today, was born. The 1980s were interesting. MRF launched the MRF Pace Foundation in 1988 with cricketer Dennis Lilly and a year later partnered with Hasbro, the toy giant, to bring in Fun School toys. So from toy balloons to toys. Fun School, by the way, has three large manufacturing plants, including in Goa and employs over a thousand people though the joint venture with Hasbro ended in 2014. And then fighter jets. Around 10 years ago, MRF rolled out tyres for the Indian Air Force's Sukhoi 30 aircraft. Chairman KM Maman then said the tyres were not as simple as they looked. Though this tyre looks black and round, there are several compounds in it and made for handling extreme conditions as a Sukhoi 30 could land at speeds of 420 km per hour, he said then. The man responsible for most of what the MRF brand is today is Philip Eepen, who retired as head of marketing almost 15 years ago. Founder K.M. Mamin Mapillai died in 2003. MRF is a family-run business and very low profile. Quite likely, you will not know who the key executives are unless you follow the space closely. The extended family owns a bevy of businesses, including the well-known Malayalam Manorama Media Group. Back to the MRF stock, it came close to the 100,000 mark in May as well, but did not touch it. The 100,000 tag still does not make MRF the most expensive stock as MRF's price-to-earnings ratio is 55.2 on a trailing basis, the Economic Times pointed out. 
companies often split their stock so a 10 rupee stock might become 1 rupee stock and thus bring down the perceived cost of buying each share mrf has not done that also it's quite widely held with public shareholders representing 72% of holding and the balance with the owners and promoters there is an interesting list of stocks quoting above 22000 rupees i could see via the et again though i picked five apart from mrf now the interesting thing is none of them have anything to do with the other so these five are honeywell automation around 41000 rupees page industries around 38000 rupees 3m around 24400 rupees shri cement around 25000 rupees and nestle at 22290 rupees now when i said they have nothing to do with each other they belong to totally different industries automation to cement and consumer products to undergarments being page industries or innovate now that perhaps is the embedded beauty in diversity of stocks in the indian stock markets the ones you can afford of course speaking of ties and mrf turns out one reason why mrf stock maybe did well could be some general cheer in the automotive space on whose back or oh, is that correct it's ties ride on or is it the other way around anyway the society of indian automobile manufacturers or cm as it calls itself said this was a great may for the industry with passenger vehicle sales at 334247 units up 13.5% compared to may 22 three wheelers went up even more sharply around 48000 units up 70% and the somewhat dormant two wheeler segment also saw strong sales at 1.4 million in may 23 up around 17% Totally, some 1.8 million vehicles of all kinds were sold in May, compared to 1.5 million last year and last May. While this is all good news, the industry is still pining for the good old days, as two-wheeler sales are still below 2016-17 levels, while three-wheeler sales are still below 2018-19 levels. Rajesh Menon, the director general of CM, said in a statement. While tire and auto companies have had some cheer, entertainment conglomerate SL Group did not. Its chairman Subhash Chandra and Z Entertainment Enterprises managing director Puneet Goenka moved a special tribunal or the Securities Appellate Tribunal against a Securities and Exchange Board of India, being the market regulator, order the day before that barred them from holding key managerial positions in listed entities. SEBI has alleged that the two have siphoned off funds from Z Entertainment. Now this news is somewhat significant since a merger between Z Entertainment and Sony Picture Networks now known as Culver Max Entertainment is imminent or was imminent and could face further delays. Puneet Goenka would have headed this merged entity. The stock fell yesterday but recovered subsequently and somewhat to close around 193 rupees. On the subject of market regulators, Bloomberg News is now reporting that the Adani Group is in talks with lenders including global banks as it seeks to refinance up to 3.8 billion dollars of a loan facility taken for its acquisition of Ambuja Cements last year. According to people familiar with the matter, the agency quoted. Indians fleeing abroad. Speaking of well-to-do families, only 6,500 high net worth individuals are set to depart from India this year, according to the Henley Private Wealth Migration Report 2023. Henley and Partners is a global firm in residence and citizenship by investment. Why only 6,500? Well, because last year 7,500 high net worth individuals took off, never to return, at least figuratively. So the 1000 who may still be here either are not getting a visa in time or may have genuinely decided to stay back and focus on maybe a new manufacturing project that leans on 50% government incentives just kidding obviously 
The broader trend is that migration trends are going back to pre-pandemic levels, says Henley's, with Australia becoming the top spot for net millionaire arrivals like it did between 2015 and 2019. Now, the top destinations for net inflows of high net worth individuals in 2023 are projected to be Australia, the United Arab Emirates or Dubai, and Abu Dhabi, Singapore, the United States, and Switzerland. On the flip side, the largest net outflows of millionaires are expected to come from China, India, the UK, Russia, and Brazil. So if you remember an old acronym BRIC, yes, the BRIC countries are amongst the biggest suppliers of outbound millionaires. A few definitions meanwhile, India has 1078 or 1078 individuals worth more than 100 million or to 820 crore rupees each. It has roughly 344,000 individuals worth more than 1 million or 8.2 crore rupees each and it has 123 billionaires or each worth more than 8,200 crores each so why did these 6,500 leave or want to leave or for that matter why did those 7,500 leave Dr. Hugh Stephen, CEO of Henley Partners, says political stability, low taxation, and personal freedom have always been key metrics for millionaires when it comes to deciding where to live. However, the priorities of affluent individuals are shifting, Dr. Stephen says, to the intangible but equally vital elements that impact their children's prospects, the quality of their lives, and the legacies they leave. they want their children to have access to top tier academic institutions and also now the option to move to cities that are more resilient to climate change offer a good quality of life and to put down roots in countries where their capital can be protected for many generations to come from a wealth preservation point of view singapore switzerland and the uae score high and also for quality of life not to forget friendly tax regimes Australia seems to score in general beginning with beaches and scenery to wide open spaces to safety and security and a good healthcare system which is apparently simple to access if you're one of those many millionaires flocking there at least in contrast to other options like the United States it finally does seem to boil down to wealth health and education in whichever order that you like Angel tax an old favorite topic. We've been referring to angel tax or section 56 in brackets 2 in brackets 5iib of the Income Tax Act 1961 which was introduced in 2012 as an anti-money laundering move and says that any premium received by a company other than a publicly listed company from a resident exceeding the fair market value of the share issued is liable to tax in the hands of this company. Now the fair market value is something that the tax department decides not you or your company. So effectively someone could invest in your company and get shares for them but the tax department will decide that this investment is actually an income in your hands and tax you for it. By the way the word angel in angel tax refers to someone who invests into your business when no institutional or large investor is in sight and could typically be what they call FNF or friends and family. So how this adds up is not clear to be. But anyway, the law has since had many modifications and layers all with the objective of making it simpler, though it seems to have done the opposite. And more so in the last 5 years including the allowing of more methodologies for valuation. In the latest move the finance ministry also exempted last month investors from 21 countries including the United States, UK and France from the levy of angel tax for NRI investments in unlisted startups. 
but it excluded Singapore, Netherlands and Mauritius, which could well reflect almost 50% of investments in the startup space, according to tax experts quoted in various reports. The Mint newspaper now reports that the Mauritius government plans to take up the issue of angel tax exemption with Indian authorities. The country's Minister of Financial Services, Mahin Kumar Siratan, intends to seek clarifications on its exclusion from the list of countries where investors are not required to pay taxes on their investments in Indian startups. His point, according to Mint, is that Mauritius has complied with all the anti-money laundering provisions recommended by the Financial Action Task Force, or the FATF, and the country has also made it mandatory for all global financial services firms based out of Mauritius to meet substance requirements, substance being in brackets. Now, this word substance means it's a safeguard in anti-tax avoidance laws globally, which requires that a firm that sets up shop in a country to possess a minimum substance, such as having an office with some local employees. Now, to revisit the angel tax theme in a somewhat different way, I have decided to pose the question, is there a way to somehow reinvent this legislation in a way that all sides, including, of course, the tax department, is happy? I will be doing this with several other tax experts in coming weeks, but I kicked off the process by speaking with Tushar Sajadeh, partner at PricewaterhouseCooper & Company. So basically, I think the government has one objective, right? It's mainly an anti-avoidance provision. The government wants to ensure that when investors are investing in companies, they are not done at excessive valuation to benefit the company or its promoter. So that's the government objective. Now, while there is no complete revamp or reinvention of this law is required, what is important is to build uh, important safeguards within the law and which is the attempt with which government has come out with this notification for excluded investors and also the draft valuation uh, rules. Now, today what is happening is that global VCP funds, earlier, as you know, this law was applicable only to resident investors. And now from uh, 1st April, under the budget, it has not been made applicable to non-resident investors also. So what is important to uh, achieve is to ensure that we exclude all the relevant investors. Today, government has come out with a list of countries from which this pooled investment vehicle uh, can kind of make an investment from and it does not include most of the important countries such as say Mauritius, Singapore, Netherlands, Luxembourg, Ireland which are a popular funding jurisdiction. So it's important that government includes those jurisdictions. On the draft valuation rule as well, basically five-man valuation methodologies are prescribed which is a good and welcome move because it has expands the valuation um, methods are available to the investor to justify the valuation in which they are investing. But it is important that there are other safeguards built, uh, such as the combination method, which also be included. But as a net-net, the answer is that the complete reinvention is not called for, but ensuring that we do give exclusion to all the genuine investors which are investing in this uh, asset class. So let me uh, frame that question a little differently, Tushar. So, I mean, we have similar investments happening by angels, which is really originally at least was friends and family all over the world. How does it work elsewhere? I mean, how do they guard against, let's say, investments above fair value, which is the concern here, and ensure that it's clean and neat? Yeah, so I think globally, different governments achieve this objective with different methods. And uh, where, uh, you know, the KYC norms, and uh, PMLA law laws are very strong and effective. Uh, those governments don't need these safeguards, right? Because through that mechanism, they are able to track the notorious investment schemes. But in India, of course, government has adopted a rule 
of doing this through the taxation mechanism. What I think government is now providing is that there are excluded investors such as say a VC fund which are registered with SEBI in form of a VCU or as in form of AIF. Now what they're providing now is that if there are other investors who are investing alongside within 90 days, those are excluded. So that is the welcome move, right? So effectively say you as an angel investor, you are investing along with another angel fund which is registered with SEBI, then your valuation will not be questioned. So those are welcome move. Of course, uh, the draft rule requires some fine tuning and uh, industry bodies like IBCA has given recommendation to the government in terms of fine tuning of these rules. But we have to understand that the government has objective and you cannot expect government to kind of do away with the law completely. But educate safeguards are placed to ensure that the genuine investors are not impacted. Then it will achieve the purpose of the government also also the invest investment community at large. Right. Last question. I mean, how are you seeing the overall uh, investment climate, particularly through these kind of methods, as in investments coming into small companies from small investors and so on, if it passes through you? Yeah, so I think there is a bit of a concern currently, right, because of this new rule coming in. And as I said earlier, this was applicable only to resident investors and now to the non-resident investors. So given the past history of this law, right, in terms of uh, the fact that we saw a lot of uh, litigation on the subject and that's why colloquially this law is now been like this named as angel tax while it applies to all sorts of companies, not only kind of angel funded companies. It also applies to normal private equity. So there's a lot of uncertainties which is there in the minds of investors. Given that the valuation is not a perfect science, right, it's more of an art. So, which is where you always can uh, kind of question valuation. And when you give that sword in the hands of the tax officer, we don't know which way it is going to cut, which is why educate safeguard is the way to go. I think there's a good starting point in terms of this new notification giving exclusion, which needs to be expanded, as I said, to cover all sorts of uh, genuine investors and also this draft valuation rules, which should hopefully, once they are expanded and once the government and CBDT addresses the issues which are raised before it uh, should then achieve the objective of both the parties. Right. Uh, Tushar, thank you so much for joining us. That's it from me this Wednesday morning. Have a great day ahead. And if you like this podcast, do share it with your friends and family. And I look forward to your feedback as well. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.